This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Apostates Anonymous, the show you turn to when you're no longer an evangelical, or even a Christian. Join hosts Matthew J. DiStefano and Keith Giles as they tip over just about every sacred cow known to man. You're sure to have a good time, if you're a heathen or heretic or apostate or reprobate. If you're an evangelical, maybe you won't have such a good time. But either way, we want you to listen. You can check out Apostates Anonymous wherever you get your podcast fix. Now, on to the show. Hi, my name is Lena Wynn, formerly with CBS in Los Angeles. My favorite part of the day is that first cup of coffee in the morning. Then it's a second cup with Keith. Good to the last drop. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Second Cup with Keith. I'm your host, Keith Giles. I'm an author, podcaster, and creator of the 90 Days Square One course and community for people who are going through deconstruction of their faith and want help moving into reconstruction of their faith. This podcast, Second Cup, is something that I've been doing off and on for a while on video, on YouTube, on Facebook, just now and again, pouring my second cup of coffee, sitting down in front of my computer, and sharing some things that are on my mind. But I wanted in this podcast to make it a little more official. And so I'm really excited to share these thoughts with you here on the Second Cup with Keith podcast. I thought for our first episode, I would talk about something that I think is really fundamental to pretty much everything that we're going to be exploring in this podcast. And that would be the way we approach the scriptures. If you're like me, you probably grew up being told that the best and only way to approach the scriptures is to look at the Bible as one single book, almost as if, you know, God wrote the Bible and it dropped down out of the sky, bound in Corinthian leather, you know, Holy Bible, author, God, and that everything in the scriptures, whether it's in Genesis or Leviticus or whether it's in Psalms or, let's say, John or... First Corinthians, whether Old Testament or New Testament, that all of it is equally to be considered as the Word of God, as inspired and authoritative. That's the way I grew up. That's the way I was taught. And when I was licensed and ordained many years ago as a Southern Baptist preacher, that was pretty much my mandate, my understanding. And so I didn't know there was any other way to approach the Scriptures. Well, a few years ago, as I was doing some research on a book, studying the early church, I'm very fascinated by early Christians, especially pre-Constantinian Christianity. But for this particular study, I was actually looking at Christianity during the time of the Reformation. This was the time when, if you're not familiar with that, this is where Protestantism came about. And under Martin Luther, people stopped being Catholics and became Protestants. During that time of history, this was the Reformation, was a very fascinating time as well, because it, it was a time when some Christians felt a need to kind of break away from institutional Christianity and return to something that, in their minds, was much closer to the original Christianity that was around, let's say, the first century. The original followers of Jesus, the disciples, the apostles, and the disciples of the apostles. And so it was during this time, I was, I was studying this time frame, a very fascinating time in church history, and I was reading a book, which by the way, I really recommend. There's some incredible insights in this book. The book was called The Reformers and Their Stepchildren, 
It's a book by Leonard Verdun. In that book, I came across early on in the book something that really radically changed the way I looked at Scripture. And it really, for me, made so much more sense of the Bible. So what is it? Well, what I discovered in that book was an observation that the author Leonard Verdun makes that one of the greatest disagreements or differences in perspective that set apart the Reformers and what he calls their stepchildren, and those would be the Anabaptists, was that they took a different, slightly different perspectives on the scripture. And it was this realization that there was another way to look at scripture and to approach scripture that really excited me. So I guess before I explain that, I should probably briefly explain what I mean between the Reformers and the stepchildren or the Anabaptists. So the Reformers would have been Luther, Martin Luther, and those who specifically were following Luther. The Anabaptists would have been those, it was a smaller community, but by the way, it's a community that actually influenced Luther. Many of Luther's friends were Anabaptists. Without getting into too much detail, and because there's a whole lot of political stuff that go that was going on at the time to explain to you what an Anabaptist was, I guess at the time, the practice of the time was that anyone who was born into the society was automatically baptized. So there was infant baptism. And so there were some Christians who were against this idea, and these were the Anabaptists. Their feeling was that this was the wrong way to approach the Christian faith, that these children were being baptized as infants without understanding anything about the gospel or who Jesus was or even what they were being you know, brought into. And then as a result, you ended up with a church full of people who believed that they were Christians because they had been baptized uh, as infants and might even attend church, but were pretty oblivious to everything that Jesus taught and had no real intention of following Jesus in their actual lives. So what Anabaptists objected to was this, and so they took the approach that only adults who have first truly understood the gospel, knew what they were doing, should on their own make a decision to be baptized not into a state church, which again was more of a political thing, or even a sociological thing, or cultural thing, but to instead make that baptism mean something, that it was a statement of your personal decision that you were going to follow Jesus Christ in your actual life. So these were the sort of two different ways of thinking. You had Luther breaking away from Catholicism and sort of inspiring this Protestant movement. But even within that movement, there were Christians who said, well, this is a good idea, Luther. (laughs) It's a good idea to do this. But we would say you haven't gone far enough. The Anabaptists would say to Luther, we need to go all the way back to Jesus and to the New Testament and rethink everything about the way we are approaching our faith in Christ. And so because of that, there was a tension between the Reformers and the Anabaptists, which went on for several years. And unfortunately, that tension between the Reformers and the Anabaptists reached a place where the Reformers began to persecute the Anabaptists and even put them to death. In fact, one of the more disturbing ways that the Reformers persecuted and executed the Anabaptists was by saying, well, if you don't believe in baptism, perhaps the best way to deal with you is to submerge you in water and put heavy rocks on your chest until you drown. So they were sort of killed by, quote-unquote, baptism. It was a pretty dark time, yes, but in the midst of all of that, what Leonard Verdun 
points out in his book, The Reformers and Their Stepchildren, is that one of the fundamental differences between the Reformers and the Anabaptists, the reason why they couldn't see eye to eye, the reason why they just couldn't come together and find common ground, that ultimately what they really disagreed about was how to approach the Bible. And what he points out is that the Reformers took this flat Bible perspective, meaning the entire Bible was one single book, and every scripture in that entire Bible had equal weight and authority. Now, of course, as I'm reading along, I'm going, well, yes, of course, that is the way, right? That's the only way I've ever been told to approach the scriptures. But then he made note of the fact that the Anabaptist took a view of scripture that was a Jesus-centric view of scripture. And as he explained it, I suddenly realized, wow, I don't know. I think to me that makes sense. Now, first of all, I didn't know there was any other way to look at scripture. And I should also say before I explain to you what this Jesus-centric view of Scripture is and how it differs from the Flat Bible approach, I should also point out that as we're going to look at it, this Jesus-centric approach is not something that we can sort of attribute to Anabaptists during the time of the Reformation. In other words, Anabaptists did not invent this perspective. I believe you can make a very strong case that the early Christian church in the first century and uh, second and third, you know, pre-Constantinian Christian church also took this exact same Jesus-centric approach to the scriptures. And in fact, as we're going to look, the evidence for that, to support that idea of a Jesus-centric view of scripture, is found in scripture itself. So, let's take a look at it. What is the Jesus-centric view of scripture? Well, briefly, the Jesus-centric view of scripture looks at all of the scriptures, Old and New Testament scriptures, and what it does is it teaches us to read those scriptures through the lens of Christ. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, Jesus says, if you abide in me, I will abide in you. So really, and that's what Christianity is all about. That's where it should begin, right? We should start with Jesus. We as individuals should first learn to abide in Christ. And the more we learn to abide in Christ, the more we learn to hear his voice, to recognize the voice of Christ, to have a connection with Christ. We experience a transformation. The more we are in connection and abiding in Christ. And now Christ lives in us. We have the mind of Christ. We begin to love as Christ loves, forgive as Christ forgives, serve as Christ serves, etc. This is the goal. So if we begin with that as our fundamental starting point, it flows out of that. So what it means is then when I go to read the scriptures, if I read anything in the Bible that doesn't line up with Christ, well, then I need to rethink it. So in other words, every scripture bows the knee to Christ. Even Moses bows the knee to Christ. In this different approach, in this Jesus-centric approach, what we have to acknowledge, or at least for a second, if this is new to you and you're like, Keith, I don't know, I don't know if I like this. I'm not sure where this is going. Okay. Well, let's just think about it this way. You know, there are certain concepts that are biblical. For example, these are biblical concepts. Genocide, torture, slavery, polygamy, patriarchy, things like that. And what do I mean when I say they're biblical? Well, I mean that I could easily pull out my Bible and I could find verses of Scripture that supported, that spoke out in favor of slavery or polygamy or genocide or, you know, things like that, all those things I mentioned. 
And by the way, not only could I do that, not only would it be easy for me to take a Bible and find verses that would support those things, we also know throughout history, people have done exactly that. We, we can look at history and see that all throughout history, people have taken the Bible and used the Bible to support slavery and genocide and polygamy and patriarchy and things like this. So these are biblical concepts. But you know what? None of those are Christ-like concepts. So if we start with Christ, if we start with a Jesus lens, then we cannot, as someone who is following Christ, who is abiding in Christ, who is starting with Christ, we cannot support slavery, genocide, patriarchy, polygamy, and things like this, because these things are not Christ-like. This is the way we would approach these things. Now, let me, let me give you a little bit of background as to why I believe this is a scriptural concept. One of the most important verses that supports this idea of a Jesus-centric approach to Scripture is in the Gospel of John. And right there in chapter 1, we read that no one has ever seen God at any time except for the Son, and that the reason the Son has come, the reason the Messiah has come, or at least one of the reasons the Messiah has come, is to make the Father known to us. So, There are two huge ideas in that verse. First of all, that no one has ever seen God at any time. That's a bold statement. That right there in the first chapter of the Gospel of John is a verse that is telling us that all those other prophets never saw God, or at least that they never saw and understood God the way that Jesus does. And why is that? Well, because Jesus is God the Son and the Son of God. Jesus is the Word of God the Word who was with God and who was God, and then who became flesh and dwelt among us. And then, of course, later in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells us that he abides now within us. So this is the reason why John can say in the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, no one has ever seen God at any time except for the Son, and that one of the reasons the Son has appeared to us and come to us in the form of Christ, is so that we would have the Father revealed to us. Now, that's that second huge point that's being made there in that verse. If we already clearly saw God, if we already had a clear picture of what God was like, then why in the world would Jesus need to come to reveal the Father to us if we already understood who the Father was? So there is the suggestion there in that verse that without Jesus, we don't have a clear picture of who God is and what God is like. Now, Jesus repeats the same idea in Matthew chapter 11 and in verse 27. Jesus says, no one knows the Father except for the Son, and the one to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Again, exact same idea. Same two points are being made. Number one, no one knows the Father except for the Son. That's the same radical idea we see in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. No one has ever seen God at any time. No one knows the Father except for the Son. And then that second big idea that the only way we can know who the Father is, is if the Son, if Christ, reveals the Father to us. Now, another verse that supports this idea, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and verse 14, Paul says, speaking about this Old Covenant Scripture, he says, to this day, whenever the Old Covenant Scriptures are read, a veil covers our eyes. And he says, because it's only in Christ that the veil is removed. 
again, same two ideas. What Paul is saying there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is that if you or anyone attempts to go and read the Old Covenant Scriptures without first understanding who Jesus is, without first abiding in Christ, without first reading it through the lens of Christ, you will misunderstand it. You won't get it. You will, you'll miss the entire point. Because why? Because only in Christ is that veil taken away. Now, another really huge New Testament scripture, which again supports this idea of approaching scripture through the lens of Christ, is in the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. This is when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. They go up onto the mountain, and while on the mountain, Jesus is transfigured before them. In other words, they get to see him unveiled in all of his glory. But that's not all that happens. They also look and see that suddenly Moses and Elijah are standing there with Jesus, and they're having a conversation. Now, I need to point out here that this is not just some random assortment of Old Testament prophets or characters. It's not like, well, you know, it could have been Jonah. It could have been David. It randomly could have been, you know, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel. No, there's something going on here. There's a reason, a very, very good reason why the two people standing there talking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration are Moses and Elijah. It's because Moses stands for the law, and Elijah stands for the prophets. And that metaphor, that idea of the law and the prophets, it's quite often used as a metaphor for the Old Covenant Scriptures, right? The Old Covenant Scriptures are the law and the prophets. That's what it contains, the law and the prophets. So for Peter, James, and John to see Jesus standing there alongside the law and the prophets, that means something. And Peter makes the, I would say, the flat Bible mistake. He sees the Messiah, the Son of God, standing alongside the law and the prophets, and he says, it's good for us to honor all three of you equally. Let's build three tabernacles, each one side by side, to honor equally the law, the prophets, and Jesus. Now, God the Father at this point intervenes and corrects Peter's mistake. I would argue this is the entire point of the transfiguration story that we have in the Gospels, because the Father intervenes, and he says in response to Peter's statement, this is my son, listen to him. And he removes Moses, the law, he removes Elijah, the prophets, and only Christ remains. That is the lesson. That is the point. And so there is a very good reason why early Christians and later the Anabaptists took this, what seems to be to our ears, a very radical approach to the scriptures. So in their minds, anything that Jesus says, all of the red letters have absolute authority and weight because no one has ever seen God at any time except for Christ. And because no one knows the Father except for the Son and the one to whomever the Son chooses to reveal him. And so this is the reason why we take a Jesus-centric approach. And I think it's so important. That's why I wanted to make sure that our first podcast here on the Second Cup with Keith took some time to at least explain this perspective. I think if you can wrap your mind around that way of looking at the Scriptures, so much more of what I'm going to say in the upcoming episodes will make more sense to you. 
By the way, I think this also helps us make sense of a lot of the Bible as well. Over the years, I myself, reading scripture would be, I find myself very confused sometimes. You know, I'd, I'd be reading along and I'd read something and I'd say, hmm, well, that's, that's disturbing. You know, I'd read something in the Old Testament. I'd say, well, that doesn't seem like something that Jesus would do or say. That doesn't seem very Christian. And then I might be reading something in the New Testament. And I'd say, well, that's, that's really radical. That's really different. But that, you know, but I can remember there's another verse in the Old Testament that kind of seems to contradict that. And so, yes, it's a bit radical for us, especially if we've been raised in a flat Bible perspective to treat every verse of Scripture as equally authoritative. But I do believe that this Jesus-centric perspective is one that is biblical. It's something that Jesus says. It's something that the gospel writers encourage us to do. It's something that the Apostle Paul encourages us to do. And I believe if we do that, if we take a Jesus-centric approach, we will be able to make more sense of the Scriptures and reconcile many of the difficulties and a lot of the confusing things that we find in Scripture that just don't seem to make sense. So hopefully this is something helpful for you to think through this sort of Jesus-centered perspective, this Jesus-centered approach to the Scriptures. A whole lot of what I'm going to be talking about in upcoming episodes is going to be things that I observe when I read the Scripture through this lens of Christ. And if you've never done it before, if you've never tried to read Scripture through this lens of Christ, I guarantee you there's probably some things you've never noticed before. And I think what you'll find really exciting as you continue to listen to this podcast and take this journey with me over a cup of coffee or tea or whatever your favorite beverage is, is that by taking this approach to Scripture, you're going to discover some things that you never saw before. You're going to suddenly go, oh my goodness, I didn't even notice that before. And these are things that we can uncover and discover and learn from when we take this Jesus-centered perspective. When we take the Father's advice and say, when he says, this is my son, listen to him. Absolutely. That's what we should be doing as followers of Christ. And so thank you for joining me on this podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to me share these things. And I'm really excited about upcoming episodes. I've got a lot of great things in store. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great day today. God bless.